Mark 8, 31 through 38. He, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word this afternoon. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds to its meaning. Uh, be in, in the message, help it to bring home those truths that you would teach us today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I want to keep it kind of concise today. Uh, I noticed last week that, and, and in the week before, I get kind of excited about God's word, and, and when I see people uh, following along with me, I have a tendency to maybe embellish even past my notes a little bit. But this, this afternoon, I knew we had a lot on, on the docket after the service, so I didn't want to go too long. I want to respect everybody's time. And there's a lot here. There's a lot here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get right to it. The first point that I want to draw out of this text should be self-evident. But Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows what he's doing, what he's been called to do. He reveals his mission plainly. To suffer, to be rejected and die, and then to rise again. In the first two verses, we, said, we see there that Mark writes, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So we see there, it uses the term the Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer many things. This was the necessary work of the Messiah, and, and it was predicted in lots of Old Testament passages, but pretty specifically passages like Isaiah 53. He must die, and then after that must be raised again. Now, the most used title for Jesus in the New Testament is the Christ or the Messiah. And that makes sense because most often you're seeing individuals refer to Jesus. But in Scripture, when you see Jesus refer to himself in the Gospel passages, the title that he uses most often is the Son of Man. Right? The Son of Man. So in this passage, he says, he began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So what's that all about? Is he just pointing out that he is, you know, somebody's kid? No, because, and, and it's not just about his divinity. He's pointing very specifically 
to a scripture in the Old Testament in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, um, this son of man is, a, is an individual that Daniel sees in one of his visions. Daniel, if you've ever studied the book of Daniel, he's got some, some crazy visions that have to do with nations rising and falling and what God is going to do in the midst of that and the grand plan of salvation, but it's got, you know, it's got monsters, it's got statues, it's, uh, you know, the book of Daniel is a fascinating book. And in the midst of one of these visions, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So that's Daniel's depiction of this son of man, right? So obviously this is not just your regular human being to have all nations and all powers bow before him for his dominion to be everlasting and never to pass away, and his kingdom to be one that is never going to be destroyed. In contrast to the visions that Daniel had of all the other kingdoms that sort of rose and fell, came and went. And so Jesus, in using this term, son of man, he isn't, he isn't denying his deity. In a sense, he's saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am this particular fulfillment to prophecy, I am this God-man that you've been waiting for. So the son of man must suffer many things. And the suffering and death of Jesus was a must because of two great facts, undeniable facts, if we're honest with ourselves. Humankind's sin and God's great love for us. If you think about it, the worst we could do in killing God's son was the greatest expression of God's love for us. So the worst we could do to God was, was in a sense, God's best way of showing to us how much he loved us. And these paradoxical notions that, that depending on which way you, you look at them, they're either horrible and horrifying or they're glorious and amazing is what the church has traditionally called the divine mysteries of faith that we lean into, especially in seasons like Lent. And then lastly, in this first little section, it says he spoke the word openly and clearly. Jesus was clear in his mission objective. And it, it wasn't going to be overthrowing the rule of the Romans and establishing the throne of David by political or military might. Which leads me to the, the second big point, right? The, the altercation, in a sense, in this passage. The second point is um, from verses 32, this kind of second half of it, into 33, when determination gets in the way of discernment, right? So my first point was Jesus knows what Jesus wants to do and has a pretty good plan for, 
for what God wants to accomplish. But every once in a while, our understanding of what Jesus is doing and what Jesus has revealed to us um, gets kind of mixed up in our thinking. And our, our determination can get in the way of discernment. We see this that Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, it says. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, right, so the fact that Jesus had to turn, I don't know if Peter was coming up to Jesus as he was kind of walking away, getting ready to leave, saying, Jesus, what are you talking about? And Jesus turns and kind of uses this as a teaching moment, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, in our Old Testament lesson today, we, have, we had God's wonderful promise to Abram and Sarai when he changes their name because he says, up to this point you've been barren, but now I'm going to bless you with children. And, and not only a promised child, but you are going to be the father and mother of many nations, that the world is going to be blessed through you. And God told Abram regarding Sarai, I will surely give you a son by her. That's a pretty clear revelation, isn't it? I will give you a son by her. Kind of like Jesus when he said, the son of man must suffer, be handed over, die and be raised. That's pretty clear as well. But as time passed without fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, and Sarai, well, Abraham and Sarah tried to help God out in how he would be fulfilling this particular promise. They let their determination to see God's plan come to fruition get in the way of their discernment. We see something very similar in the gospel passage with Peter. Peter takes Jesus aside, begins to rebuke him, this, and this is on the heels, lest we forget, this is on the heels of Peter um, recognizing that Jesus was the Messiah. We'll get a little bit more into that in just a second. When, when Peter is rebuking Jesus, he's concerned. He's concerned for his friend, his leader, Jesus, his, his rebuke is intended in love. I, I don't think Peter is kind of showing off here. I don't think he's trying to be the, the star pupil or, um, or in any way do anything other than express how much he cares for Jesus. His rebuke is intended in love. In Matthew 16 verses 15 through 20, we get a little bit more insight into why Peter might have done this in the first place. In that, in that passage, Peter asked the, the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right? So that's the same, so far kind of the same thing that we have in Mark's gospel. But then, in Matthew's gospel, there's a little bit more exposition. It says, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So from combining our knowledge from both of these passages and what we know transpires, let's break down kind of timeline-wise how this goes. Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. That's number one. Then Jesus compliments Peter, commends him, telling him that God has revealed this to him and in fact has a very special plan for him in terms of him being kind of the rock on which, and this confession of faith would be the rock on which God would, would build his church. Then, thirdly, Jesus told his followers of his coming, suffering, death, and resurrection. Fourth, Peter, kind of in light of number two, feels like, well, this isn't right. Um, I believe that, I, you know, Peter's saying, I believe I heard from God, and you kind of affirmed it, that you're the long-awaited Messiah, God's chosen one. And so Peter, lastly, then takes this conviction and begins to rebuke Jesus as a result. Peter was so confident in his ability to understand the revelation that he received from God that he didn't filter his revelation in light of God's revelation in his word. His determination derailed his discernment and dependence on Jesus to be the primary interpreter. Peter's interpretation of the Messiah's calling was shaped in part by scripture. Yes, I, I believe Peter knew the scriptures, at least, you know, to a, a better than passing degree, but also by his felt need as a member of a subjected nation, the nation of Israel. Israel needed rescue. God had promised rescue in a Messiah. Peter didn't see how dying on a cross was going to achieve this needed rescue. So he felt his need to correct Jesus, to rescue the rescuer from his mistaken path towards the cross. Peter's a perfect example of how a sincere heart coupled with merely human thinking can often lead to disaster. When Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, you don't have in mind the things of God, but, but merely human concerns, he exposed how Peter came into this satanic way of thinking. He didn't make a deliberate choice to reject God and set himself at odds with, with Jesus' mission. He simply let his mind settle on human concerns instead of the things of God. And Satan took advantage of it. Peter couldn't make sense of what Jesus was saying because his perception was limited by his preconceived notions of what the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah would accomplish. Now, what this all means for us. The last point. Here it is. It's not getting much harder at this point. You want to be like Jesus? Then you've got to be willing to be like Jesus. I know, that's earth-shattering, right? But if you want to be like Jesus, you have to be willing to be like Jesus, to be okay with it. He calls the crowd over to him, right? And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. It's going to slip through their fingers. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
For what good is it? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul once it's lost? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angel. So here's the big so what to everything we've looked at so far. And it's a point that seems kind of contradictory at first. Following Jesus is hard. And it's easy. Following Jesus is hard, and it's easy. I think if you look at your own life, that truth would, would probably echo. Those of us that have been, been following Jesus, trying to pattern our lives after Jesus for a while, it's hard and it's easy. It's hard in that it will challenge every natural inclination that we have as human beings to want to avoid pain, to avoid suffering. And to remain just kind of the naturally selfish individuals we, that's ingrained to, in our DNA and in our brains. Survival, self-protection. A lot of what passes for Christianity as a result in our Western culture is just moralistic spirituality that's more interested in making the cross easier to carry than wanting to be like Jesus. You know, sanding it down, patting it a little bit so it doesn't chafe our shoulder. You know, when I look back on some of, some of my spirituality in the past, that's what, that's what I was doing. We hear Jesus say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we're more than happy to tell Jesus what that means. And generally, we take it to mean that we want to remain comfortable and happy. So that's how it's hard is that it runs counter to a lot of our natural inclinations. How is it easy? Well, it's easy in the way that that, that way of Jesus is God's intention for all of creation. And it's what prepares us for the greatest part of our existence. Life immortal after this mortal existence. We are realizing the full beauty of what it means to be human, created in God's image when we pattern our lives after Jesus. The yoke is easy because we're yoked with Jesus. The yoke is easy because we're yoked with Jesus and pulling in the same direction. The burden is light because those things that weigh us down are lifted as we see things in the context of God's purpose for us to prepare us for our heavenly home. If God's purpose were to make us more comfortable and happy here, well, then a lot of what passes for Christianity would make sense. But if the purpose is to prepare us for a heavenly home and take as many people with us as possible, then we've got to take seriously passages like this. You want to be like Jesus? Great. Let's get okay with being like Jesus then. It's a matter of taking up our cross and, and putting to death our preconceptions of how our lives are supposed to turn out and what God is going to do for us along the way. Remember, Jesus spoke these words before his death. This isn't some sort of, oh, I see how it all turned out and the cross was really a beautiful thing and, you know, the, 
again, we're back to the Hallmark card sort of, you know, idea of the three lovely crosses and the sunset in the background. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was ugly. It happened, it happened by a dump. Jesus is speaking these words before his death. And likely after he and his followers had spent enough time that they'd walked one of those walkways in and out of town where the Romans purposefully to intimidate hung criminals, i.e. anybody that wasn't towing the Roman line, on crosses so that you had to walk in and out of certain holy places by passing these people being tortured to death on the cross. When Jesus referenced the cross and that his followers would need to take up their cross and follow him, losing their lives in order to save them, he was not speaking metaphorically. That is not how the original disciples would have heard it. It's probably not how we should hear it. He was using a concrete example that they were all too familiar with. Want to really stand for something? This is what that looks like. In a moment, we're going to sing our hymn of response. All to Jesus I surrender. Make this your prayer today. As we look back on 2020 in our annual meeting, consider your level of commitment to Christ and his purposes for this congregation in the coming year. If we can live into greater Christ-likeness in 2021, wherever God leads us, though it be hard at times, It's going to give us the joy of knowing we're right where God wants us to be, right where Jesus wants us to be. Let's pray. Jesus, to you we surrender. We surrender even our preconceptions of what you have shown us and are asking of us to this point. We want to avoid the error of Peter in thinking that your revelation to us in this moment means, well, hey, we've got it all figured out now. Help us live in full dependence of your spirit and wisdom, grace, and truth. We give you full control and take up our crosses to follow. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We surrender even our preconceptions of what you have shown us and are asking of us to this point. We want to avoid the error of Peter in thinking that your revelation to us in this moment means, well, hey, we've got it all figured out now. Help us live in full dependence of your spirit in wisdom, grace, and truth. We give you full control and take up our crosses to follow. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.